Here we go. The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Yes, and follow us on X, FKA Twitter. That's where it's happening. The follower count is blowing up. It's still pretty pathetic on, on the grand scale, but it's exciting to be growing and so many friendly people on Twitter who would never say anything to hurt your feelings. They're in my message inbox like crazy every day, multiple times a day. They all want to know how I'm doing, where I'm from, my mother's maiden name. <laughs> <laughs> wow plenty and, of friendly people then and and yes and i'm i'm buying crypto from all of them i think that's a smart investment decision yeah yeah, can't go wrong <laughs> but this isn't this isn't investment advice uh and, and he, elon musk also he uh he he keeps messaging me from all of his different accounts telling me how grateful he is that i'm following him on his fans accounts and I'm getting weird vibes, but, you know, nobody would pretend to be Elon Musk on Twitter for their own personal gain, would they? Never, never. <laughs> I've never seen that in my life. Oh, I can't believe. Well, I don't know if it was if were I Elon Musk and. XFKA Twitter were my platform, I would have something in there. That at least heavily scrutinized anyone that was trying to claim they were Elon Musk, because it's not I mean, they don't they don't really do a great job of pulling off the scam. Like they go these these people that create I mean, of course, I, I feel compelled to say out of the gate, like, don't give any personal information to somebody that sends you a message on social media, even if it's somebody that you think you know, like my mother-in-law has fallen victim to some of these scammers because they hack, like they will hack her friend's account and, and then say, Hey, I'm, you know, I need help. Can you send me a few bucks? And she's looking at this picture of her friend, uh, messaging her, who she thinks is her friend from her friend's Facebook account. And then she finds out later, oh, this person uh, had their account hacked at some point and was completely unaware that this was going on because this person wasn't active on Facebook. And this is how the scam goes. It's like you, you just you can't believe anything that's online anymore. But I think we both probably had a fair amount of time spent away from social media over these last couple of weeks. What have you been up to, sir? Oh, well, I've been having a great time hanging out with the family, being up in Yorkshire, which is sort of the middle of the UK, sort of north to middle of the UK, where it's very uh, rainy, very dark. But uh, nonetheless, beautiful, <laughs> and that's where... <laughs> that that's that's where I was born up there so it's uh, good to see some of the some of the more extended family and uh, spend christmas up there and it was just a really nice time taking pictures and uh that that's about what I was up to what what were you up to sir how how long does it take to drag like if you were to start on one coast 
and drive across the island, like from from the widest point to the next widest point. Like if you went through, if you went from Norwich to through Birmingham over to, uh, I'm just I'm looking at a map over to uh, Pen Pen per cow. Or uh, it, do you even do you recognize any of these names? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's, let's fish say guard from St. David's. There we go. That's good. Drive, drive yeah, from so Norwich to St. David's. Norwich to St. David's. I'm going to say, you know, any major sort of like left to right drive. They take a lot longer than you think, because like the roads were made for like horse and cart. And oh, wow. For like not. Like a lot of the roads here, especially in, especially when you get to like the countryside, there's no motorways. Most of the motorways go up and down the country. They don't go like left and right. Ah. So if, so it actually can take quite a long time. I wouldn't be surprised if it would take you about five hours to drive one side to the other, even though it's not necessarily that long of a distance. Like it's still to get up to where I was staying with my grandma which is up in Yorkshire, it still takes about two and a half hours, but the trip is only about 100 miles. Oh, yeah. Think about it. That, yeah, which that we, makes sense. Yeah, which, which is kind of insane, because, like, you know, the, you know, on the M1, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, so, you know, you can cover 100 miles in, you know, relatively easy time. You can cover it, you know, an hour, hour and a half. But it takes, it, it genuinely does take two and a half hours to, to do that kind of journey, because the rest after that you get on the motorway like everything else is like going up and down like hills and country lanes and you just you physically can't go any faster than 40 miles an hour if you go more than that you're just gonna come off and you're gonna die so um (laughs) that's just the situation with 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 a lot of these old english roads i know from going from south from the very south to the very Let's, I, I wouldn't say the very top, because I don't know how the hell you'd really... Oh, I guess you could. Yeah, you can get all the way up there. Um, up to, like, somewhere like Thurso, which is the, almost the very, very top of Scotland. Oh, yeah. I'd imagine just... that would... Yeah, that, that, that would probably take... Uh, that would probably take you about eight hours. Well, eight it's... Hours to, I'm to just looking, like, the, the, the... two, so maybe the, ten hours. The widest part that we were discussing i mean it, it is kind of at the southern end but it looks like i don't know the uk or that that chunk of it that chunk of britain is maybe a third of of like the the north to south distance but i mm. i only ask because my the family that I want to visit over the holidays is like eight hours away, mm-hmm. and that's for me. You know, I I'm a delivery driver, so the Christmas holiday is like the busiest time of year, and I just can't justify to myself. And maybe this is a selfish explanation, but I can't justify to myself driving eight hours to spend you know 48 hours 24 waking hours maybe and then turn around and drive another eight hours yeah to get back be cheaper to fly surely it would but then you have to go through tsa and i forget you have tsa over there yeah all i hear 
all day long. <laughs> when I well, when I listen to because I listen to a lot of uh, comedians doing their podcasts. And that's one of the things that comedians talk about all the time, because they're always on planes flying here and there to do their shows. And it sounds like just a, the worst, most demeaning, demoralizing thing that you, a person could put themselves through. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Go to the airport, go through security, be abused and mistreated, and then smashed in to this flying sardine can. Uh, to do it all over again later on that night. Uh, and it's also, yeah, I, I, I would actually <laughs> rather fly than drive. But then there's the question of money, you know, liquidity, available funds, and mm -hmm. the two small children that I would have to travel with. Yeah, also. there's that, there's that. And inflicting them uh, on other people. Like, that's where it comes. <laughs> that, that's what it comes oh, down really to funny. for me. Yeah. I don't want to be the guy on the plane with the screaming kids. Yeah, you don't. Oh, okay. So there is a secondhand, you know, almost a secondhand guilt thing going on. But that also factors into driving. Yeah. So I didn't. And, and that eight hours, like how many miles would that be? Uh, it's about 400 miles. 400. Interesting. Okay, so I've done a little, you know, directions thing from uh, Norwich, which is right on the eastern side of the country. And I've done it to Swansea. So that's a pretty left to right journey there. And it's only about 300 miles. But it's going to take five hours and 40 minutes. So you can tell like how much more annoying it is to do those kind of journeys because you're not actually going that far. You know, I did 300 miles in a day in Europe, you know, on my trip. And that was easy. But, it, you know, five and a half, half hours is just brutal. And there's, yeah, Maybe. there's not a lot. And that, that five and a half hours would be much more uncomfortable than, yeah. than the eight hours that it would take me to drive in the car by myself without kids. Because did, I mean, I don't know. Do you, did you ever take any road trips when you were a kid any long yeah, I did journeys yeah, in yeah. the car? I, yeah. We, we drove all the way to Croatia and back. How many miles is that? A, a fair few, I think. <laughs> Oh, um, you know what? That's a that's a really good question. I mean, we broke up the trip, so it wasn't in in one go, luckily. Um, but I can quickly find out for you. When I was third grade, was probably ten years old. My family took a road trip from where we lived near the Cascade Mountains in Oregon to mm. Indiana, which is, you know, Chicago for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Euros, not familiar. And that's about 1,600 miles. Wow. And I don't remember how long it took because, well, to me, it felt like it took most of my life at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so I take that into consideration. Like I'm always thinking about that, how brutal the long car rides were as a, you know, 10 year old kid with a Game Boy or something. Just sitting in the car, trying to come up with ways to entertain myself. And, and then I don't like, I don't want to put my kids through that, which means we'll put them on an airplane and it'll be much faster. And then I don't know, like, I feel like I need to stretch out on the psychologist couch and find out why, why do I have <laughs> such a problem traveling yeah. to my family? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's a, well, and that, that's a, that's a deeper one for you there, bro. Yeah, yeah I agree. Well, and it's, <laughs> but that's also kind of like part of the holidays. Spending, yeah, yeah, yeah. spending time with family and we have this huge distance to cover. And, and it's, it's also like the, you know, like you say five hours to drive across, you know, Britain. And I think that's nothing because it takes me eight, like you, you could drive across the entire island in less time than it would take me to get to my parents. Mm. But it's for a 10 year olds an eternity. Oh, I can imagine. And I just looked it up to go to Croatia is like 1300 miles. So yeah. So a similar thing. It's ba I mean, yeah. basically the same. Like it, it takes a, a lot longer though. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, Google's telling me, and it's probably right, that it would take 22 hours and 16 minutes Ooh. to go that far. That's, that's rough. It's all those. Yeah, that's Europe, that's Europe for you. It's like, oh, yeah, the only road available is this, like, cobbled street that, you, you know, was built, like, 14 million years ago. And the speed limit's, like, 20 miles an hour or something. <laughs> Why so do you like, think flying... So, so like, I, I listen to a lot of uh, Adam Carolla. He's one of my favorite podcasters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a good guy. Media personalities. And he's always, he always rants about how awful flying is and how terrible TSA is and how just disrespectful. And, and I mean, it's not even like the respect thing. It's just like the indifference. Yeah. Like, you know, they're running through the terminal to get to the, to the gate and uh, they're calling or or they know like they've got their first class tickets or whatever and they they know that they're coming and they know th th but they shut the door anyway and then they get there you know 20 seconds after they close the door and they go oh no sorry we can't we can't let you on because apparently the rule is when you once the the door once the gate door closes in uh uh airplane world that that means that the flight has departed so they can't oh they can't undepart the flight and open the door even for people that have probably paid two thousand dollars to be on that plane but i wonder what is is it the same i mean what's it like flying in the uk and europe is it the so same i've had the, pri sort I've of had the privilege to fly in europe and in america i've had the you know unfortunate experience of flying in america <laughs> and i can tell you that flying in europe is far less stressful and far better than flying in america the thing i hated the most about flying to america was um as soon as you get off the plane in america they're like right fingerprints 
I was I was like, wait, what? Land of the free? I got to give up my fingerprints right now? I have never in my life given up my fingerprints in the UK or in Europe ever. Period. And the first thing they do is they're like, right, fingerprints. What? Dude, Why do you fucked. think? I mean, I've, I've wondered this to myself and I've probably even brought it up on a podcast or so, you know, far in the past from that, you know, that the era of that podcast that I just uh, uploaded last week. Why is it so miserable? And, and, and like, why do they paint such a miserable picture? Because it's heavily ingrained in the culture. If you're going to fly, you're going to hate it. You know, you're, they're, they're going to make you miserable. Right. Fingerprints. Okay. Now take off all your clothes, go in this room. Lay, lay face down on the table and prepare yourself. <laughs> no. Like, what, what is that? Why? I mean, and it, it's, Dude, it's such. It's fucked. Like, I wonder what it's. I mean, and it's, and it's such a large part of the economy because when, uh, when 9-11 happened, the economy took such a massive hit because, I mean, well, not only because of, you know, the, all the financial implications from the World Trade Center coming down. But also because all of the flights were grounded. The, no, you know, nobody wanted to fly after that. It had a massive impact on the economy. Yet they make it so, if, I mean, if, if it's such an important part of the American economy, what is the narrative in the media that flying is so terrible? Like, why, like, shouldn't they be trying to get as many people flying and traveling as possible for the economic boon, but, but that's not, that's not what happens. It's, it's, it's as if they're trying no. to do everything to keep people off of airplanes. Oh, of course. Cause then people fucking buy cars, don't they? Yeah. They buy and those. So now, 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 now they're going after planes cause of the environmental impact they have, even though that the airline industry is like 3% of like all carbon emissions. And, and it's, it's such, well, and, and this is, it, it, it reminds me of this, this quandary that's happening with, uh, like I, I just listened to, um, an actual Russian ambassador speak on this podcast and it, it, it struck me as, as heavily prepared, but towards the end of his spiel, he started bringing up the, the West, the, the collective West, but also the United States and their stances in these conflicts in Ukraine. But then also the stark contrast of, of American behavior between Russia and Ukraine and American behavior between Israel and Palestine or, you know, IDF and Hamas or however you want to carve it up in the Ukraine, or in that sort of Eastern European Asian conflict, America's all in for Ukraine, devoting all, you know, the lifeblood of the United States to Ukraine's fight against Russia un unflinchingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this causes the international community to feel one way about the United States. And, and most people would say, yes, we're in favor of supporting Ukraine slash 
halting Russian expansionism or whatever they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then smash cut to Israel, Palestine, and the United States approaches very different. And in, in what's and what a lot of people are saying is funding both sides of the conflict because they send aid to Gaza and then they unfreeze Iranian assets, billions and billions of dollars in Iranian assets. I think it's fairly universally agreed that Iran is funding Hamas and Hezbollah and these other proxies that are attacking Israel. Yet the Biden administration is unfreezing assets in the billions of dollars to allow them to fund these proxies to continue attacking Israel. And this creates an entirely different impression about the United States from the international community because far fewer people believe that. Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinians are entitled to aid and funding than believe Israel is entitled to the same support and funding. Yeah. So when we talk about not flying, well, we're talking about driving cars or taking trains and buses. But, but what, I mean, what options do we have there? It's, it's almost as if the narrative is, Stay home, not drive your car. It's just don't go anywhere. Go down to your basement and do some more drugs and play some more video games. Mm. Is that so? So what you're so what you're saying? It's more like, um, like the oppression of free movement. Yeah, I suppose so. That's interesting, mm, yeah. isn't it? It is very interesting. I think I think to some degree, yeah, for sure. It's almost almost the um, opposite of of what it is, or 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 what sort of the uh, the general plan or belief system is for the European Union. Like, wasn't that kind of one of the, oh yeah the big positive aspects of the EU is of oh, you know free movement? Now you don't have to show your passport every time you cross a border, dude. Like that is. Probably the main pillar of the entire point of the EU was not only free movement of people, but the free movement of anything, the free movement of goods, people, you know, dig digital, everything. Um, and that just simplifies so much. That's generally, that that's why I'm generally in favor of that position of, of sort of the globalist new world order because that yeah. does seem like i feel like i'm in a unique position politically because mm -hmm. like well i i mean going back to adam carolla i wanted to bring up this his so he on on his podcast he's been playing uh because he's been off he's been on vacation and cheers to him he's like one of the hardest working guys and that's kind of what this gets into He's he's known so he's been playing on his podcast all of the uh so he does at the end of every year he does the Ace Awards which is you know uh, uh an aggregation of of the best moments of his show through through the year. Well, he's gone from the most recent to the fourth annual and however many two two weeks worth of 
of podcasts. And as I was listening, of course, he has his political stance that hasn't really changed. And he prides himself on throwing that in the faces of the leftists that say, uh, you know, pay your fair share and, and sort of the, the almost like the Occupy Wall Street movement, which I don't really know very much about, except for it was like this unification of all, well, it, it gave birth to the identity politics that we have now. Mm. It was, the, the Occupy movement was about the, the 99% versus the 1%. It was like the, I mean, I don't know, a resurgence of populism, maybe you would call it. It's probably the resurgence of modern socialism. That's probably what it was. Well, but the problem that the elite took with the Occupy movement was that the majority of the population was realizing, hey, all you bankers and hedge fund managers and elite politicians have been running your douchebaggery behind the scenes and making us all poor and keeping all of the wealth for yourself. But once those elites identified that this was the problem, they went, no, no, no. Look at, look at you. Black women, white men, immigrants, naturalized citizens, you've all unified under this one banner. How can that be? You guys are so different. Brown people can't protest with white people. And that has snowballed now into what, I mean, the, the cultural problems that we have today to the benefit of the 1% of people that control 99% of the wealth in the world. But it's, it's a much, much more complicated issue than I've just explained. There's much more nuance to it. But one of Corolla's persistent narratives is the idea of working for what you have, earning your living. He always gets, he gets so bent out of shape whenever he hears the idea of paying your fair share. Because I think what, uh, the, the statistic, I think, is the top 1% of of you know the wealth earners in this country pay like almost 40% of all the taxes for the country. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, pretty much that's how it goes. And that doesn't seem fair to me. I I think the idea of a flat tax seems much more fair. I mean, why yeah, should I agree as well. Why should we pay 10% but somebody that makes, you know, 500,000 a year has to pay, you know, 40% or 50% or, or what, like it, it's been more fair now than it has been. But I don't, I don't feel like, I mean, I wasn't planning on talking about the Occupy movement because I don't really know that much about it. I just don't feel like that was the goal of the Occupy movement was to get wealthy people to pay more taxes. I think that was just another wedge that was driven between the population. But these people, they, I mean, 
what what chance do we really have when the 1% that we're supposed to be, you know, waging our righteous war against owns all of the politicians and owns all of the mainstream media outlets and now owns most of the social media companies as well. I mean, this, these were the steps that they took to divide us all by race and gender and sexual preference and sexual identity and political affiliation and just, I mean, every possible box that they can put you in smaller and smaller boxes so that you're in smaller and smaller groups so that you really have no power over anything that happens to you. But I bring up Corolla and his occupy his, his anti occupy sentiments because he talks about earning your living and being the guy that drives, you know, the Bentley through the hills of, of Hollywood and the kids that stand on the side of the street. And how in one era it was, oh, hey, look at that guy. Boy, he works hard and he earned his living and now he gets to drive a really nice car. Has now changed into, why does he need that such a nice car? How come I don't have a nice car? Mm. And I, and I, I mean, of course, what the, the natural response is, well, because you don't work as hard as he does and did or... Does he still work hard? What and and what is his what is his level of input? Like like at 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 what point is it okay to sort of not be contributing? Because I worked on construction sites when I was first entering the workforce. Backbreaking labor out in the sun, you know, not really having a good time. And I looked at the, the, you know, the guys that would drive the nice trucks onto the construction site and they'd dig around in the back to find their hard hat that didn't even have a scratch on it. And then they walk into the office and sit in the air conditioning for who knows how long. And then halfway through the day, he leaves the office, jumps back in his truck, takes off. And just from my position, he didn't do a lick of work. He sat in the air-conditioned office, but he's probably being paid three times what I'm being paid as a laborer. Justify that. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. Sometimes it's a market thing. Sometimes it's nepotism. But what is his, it's, uh, what is his contribution? I mean, not much. And you know, you know what construction is like. The unions, a lot of the unions have got a fucking chokehold on that thing. So you'll have like, it's the same here. You look at our motorways, and it's it's true. And one one guy's filling the pothole, and three guys to watch Um, because they just want to. You know, there's a project near me, um, and they're going to build 16 kilometers of highway. And I believe 16 kilometers is, 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 what, 10 miles or something? Sure. And uh, this is only two lanes on each side, I believe. 
and it's going to cost one billion pounds. Now, how the fuck Jeez. is that going to cost one billion pounds? I don't understand it. I don't get it. And, it, and it's it's to do it's to do with it's to do with that. You just get some some industries just have these sort of parasitic type, you know, companies and, and people in them, and then you get others that are completely and utterly brutal, um, like the freelancing industry. That is the most capitalistic industry ever because it's all contract work. So if you're not the best of the best, yeah. you can't get the big contracts. All merit based. Um, yeah, it's 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 all it's all experience and it's all qualifications. You know, if you want to see capitalism working as intended, the freelancing um, industry is the most cutthroat and the most um, capitalist environment ever. So my wife and I watched this. Uh... Uh, so, you know, we like to watch a program or two while we're working out. And one of the things that we watched was, um, there's a, there's a bunch of, so like, uh, stranger things and black mirror came out on Netflix and that started this sensation oh, cool. of, of, uh, all of these sort of sci-fi horror thriller TV shows that all came out. Everybody was like, oh, we're going to be the next Stranger Things, you know, or, or we're going to be the next Black Mirror, which were both great shows. So, I mean, obviously they're going to try to lure more viewers in by selling themselves the, in this way. One of the shows that we watched, I, I forget the name. It was maybe it was Two Sentence Horror Stories, which I don't think was a Netflix original. But in this particular episode it was about um paparazzi photographers and okay the the it it's it's almost sort of tongue-in-cheek like poking fun at these photographers people that work in this industry because in this one scene where uh the action is developing there there's uh three photographers Three, three or maybe four photographers that are all on the scene and they all know each other. And all but one is standing there snapping photos as fast as they can with complete and utter disregard for their own well-being. While this, <laughs> this horror is developing around them, it's like they're in their own, it's like they're inside of their camera. Nothing can hurt me. I'm just going to stand here and take pictures. And that's the kind of like, uh, Tim pool is the same way. Another one of my favorite journalist, podcaster, media personalities. Like he, he's been in war zones where literal civil wars are taking place, you know, earning his journalistic bona fides. But what about day traders? Is it, is it okay to not contribute if you have a lot of money to invest? And, this, and we're just talking personal opinion. Are they hmm. really contributing to society by basically playing the stock market like a casino? They're very revered in American. Oh, he's a he's a day trader, which means he just chills in his kitchen or maybe he goes down to Starbucks, drinks his coffee, makes some trades, makes twelve hundred dollars 
calls it a day, gets up and, and continues to do the same thing day in, day out, you know, lives in a, <clears throat> lives in a house worth, you know, six figures, seven figures, drives a Tesla, but for all intents and purposes, just consumes. He consumes and invests his money. But his position in society, in the culture of society, much, much higher than the guy that you see on the side of the road. The, the one that's in the hole with the shovel, not the one holding the sign standing outside the hole. I'm talking about yeah. the guy that's doing, because that is... I mean, not to discredit or devalue that as a problem. It's tremendous waste. But then look at somebody like the retiree. And I know you have your opinions of retirees. And I'm not trying to tease you about it. Because the whole no, idea I, I is... I don't have an opinion of retirees. I, 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 I have, an, I have a, a misgivings with policy to favor retirees but it's it's centered more around their level of contribution wouldn't you agree i'm not trying to put words in your mouth and i'm not trying to like put you on the spot Ooh, i wouldn't say it's about their contribution because they are more than entitled to retire when they want why um it, it, my issue with retirees is that the policies that exist benefit them in society, even though they don't need it. Ah. Um, so that's, that is my, that has been my long-standing issue with, with retirees. It's that they own one third of the assets in the country. They are the richest demographic in the country and they get the most government benefits and preferential treatment in the healthcare service. So it really does pay to be old in the, in, in the country. And that's not their fault, necessarily. Um, I don't think it's their fault to be old and to be wealthy. I, I mean, wonder, yeah. perhaps you know this off the top, but I wouldn't expect you to. I wonder sure. what percentage of political donations come from retirees in the UK. Oh, it's a fucking huge amount. It is a huge amount. It is by far... The majority, outside of outside of corporate stuff, so we by far the majority of actual active political members of a party. Like you're saying, I'm a member of the Labour Party, or I'm the me I'm a member of the Conservative Party. They're all they're all above fifty. You won't you won't see many many young people, and and you know a, a great deal of of the voting majority is of the elderly population. It's an interesting revelation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, now you understand why they do those policies, right? Like, why the, why the triple lock pension exists. Like, the triple lock pension in the UK is a pension plan that's designed to go up by the highest number of three metrics. Either wage um, growth, inflation, or 2.5%, whatever is higher, and it does it every year. So if inflation goes up by 10%, the retirees get 10% extra uh, on their pension, regardless. Wow. If wage if wages go up by eight nine percent, their pension goes up by eight nine percent, 
Or if those two numbers aren't big enough, then it goes up by 2.5% guaranteed. No one else in this country gets anything like that. Nobody. But the richest portion of the country does. How is that fair? Especially considering that that doesn't come from their own private pension. That comes from the public pension, which we all have to pay for to our bad taxes. So I'm not saying it's wrong for retirees not to do nothing. I'm just saying <laughs> it seems kind of wrong that they are doing nothing and getting paid for doing nothing. Because well, and then my I, wages go up, so their pension must go up and I must pay for it. And, and That's outrageous. I, I struggle with it also because their level of contribution is... Now, I, I mean, and I have to say, I, I hope to retire one day. I, I hope to collect my pension and, you know, my 401k contributions, etc. Yeah, but I've worked, in theory, a lifetime to get to the point where I can retire. But I barely got, I, I, I got a raise this year that barely, I mean, I don't even think kept up with inflation. Like it was close to what inflation was reported at the time. But then we talk about real inflation numbers and real wages and it gets all convoluted and, and but I'm, yeah, I'm still going to work every day for sometimes 10, 11, 12 hours to earn that wage. Mm -hmm. While a retiree, they've, they've done their work at their agreed upon salary at the time. Mm -hmm. And now, like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about fixed income. On, on one hand, I think, okay, fixed income is scary especially when you have these kamikaze bankers that like to just sort of gamble with the economies of entire countries. Yeah. And you, then we see like, Oh, inflation's actually closer to like 18, 20% on, on just the cost of most uh, essential goods. Yeah. And then you think, well, that poor retiree that's on the fixed income now is paying 20% extra and they're not working they're not i mean they have no additional income but if the if the retirees in the uk are just chilling getting these raises on their pension yeah every time you know anything happens why shouldn't I they do a little bit to contribute. I mean, I, the, the numbers don't lie. Like the level of poverty above 65, which is, you know, the, the retiree base, really, is so much lower than the level of poverty in the middle and lower classes of, of age categories. I mean, it doesn't even compare. And plus, you know, if you're on a fixed income, sure, the only thing that's going to really affect you is, 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 is food and fuel. Because most retirees are mortgage-free. Most retirees mm. don't have kids living with them anymore. So their overall expenses are so, so much lower because they don't, they don't rent. As I said, you know, they own 30% of all the assets in the, in the country. You know, they own their own house outright. My grandma does. She hasn't paid her mortgage in years. 
So, you know, she has a, she has a, mm. I've never, I've never once heard her complain about money. And in fact, she's trying to give it away. Yeah. Um, she's, you know, <laughs> she, she, she's, she, she, you know, she's trying, she's trying to give it away. And it's, and, and that's, and that's, the, and, and they get so many discounts as well, as well as the fact that they get, you know, increase in, um, in their pension year and year that they get, you know, uh, pensioners discounts on, on public transport um and this that and the other so and you know young people do do get that as as well but you gotta ask yourself like okay a young person at university that has like zero money and probably negative because they got so much fucking debt and no savings well they gotta rely they gotta rely on their grandparents to take care of them through those tough times right so then the kids will take care of their grandparents when they're grandparents themselves or i i don't know we've we're 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 entering this territory where uh, one of the things that tim pool loves to talk about is how conservatism will and he's not a conservative by the way so it's basically just like when he says when somebody like tim pool says conservatism what he's really Mm. talking about is is like common sense centrism the the, the people yeah yeah the, the people that exist in in that reality they're having a couple of kids they're sending them to solid schools they're involved in their child's education and they will perpetuate that set of values throughout the generations mm-hmm. well as uh, your your average everyday leftist is going to die alone still living with their parents and their purple hairdo because they are encouraged not to have kids because of climate change. And if you do happen to get knocked up, well, you better run to the nearest clinic and get yourself an abortion, which just means on paper in the future, there will be far fewer leftists than there will be centri you know conservative centrist moderates if you I like. mean uh, I mean mathematically it's 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 it's, it's an impossibility that there'll be more of these sort of blue hair whatever leftists in the future especially since we're importing so many immigrants which we've said I know in the last episode that are typically more conservative you know than than your standard you know super left wing you know BLM writer or something like that you know these people are just not going to I mean, they, they will just extinct themselves through natural selection. Well, and the, um, the caveat there is, it, like, at, at least in the United States, mm. that the left has control of the institutions and they will mm-hmm. crank out more leftists from universities because they're all captured by leftism. But you're right. I mean, the the immigrants will be more conservative through the generation. Like we may, we may lose an election in the next few years, but like most of the immigrants that have been in the United States for, for a length of time, they're kind of anti illegal immigration. I mean, of course, like it's, it's, it's one of those things too. Like I, I, I am, you know, as as someone from Nicaragua, I am very anti illegal immigration. 
Except for my cousin, who's on his way from Nicaragua. I want him to get in. <laughs> but everybody else can be. But that's just human beings. Like, I... Yeah, I mean, well, you've got to accept the fact that most people don't come to the U.S. illegally, you know, as an immigrant. And it's the same for the U.K. Like, for the, for the most part, if you took the actual numbers of people coming to the, to the country. So you've got to think, if you're a normal immigrant, right, and you've come through and you've done all the thing and you've got your green card... You wouldn't want to give, you wouldn't want to say, turn around and say, look, this guy can just walk in, be an illegal immigrant, and then undercut me at my job. Like that, they are not going to, why would they just, because they hold some kind of, uh, I don't know, like Hollywood style, we're all in the same boat thing? No. No. That's not how well, it's working in the UK. I mean, look at Swella Brabham and Pretty Patel. They fucking hate the idea of the small boats. They hate the idea of illegal immigration. And their entire families are immigrants. So that, that, that just doesn't fly. Well, and that brings None up those people. an important point about immigration is, I mean, un unless they've just crossed the border into El Paso, mm -hmm. those immigrants aren't homeless. The massive homeless populations in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles up until this immigration crisis, the homeless population were citizens, drugged out citizens or mentally ill citizens that mm -hmm. choose to be homeless. It's not immigrants. The immigrants come because they want a home. They want to earn their wage and a living and start a family. And those are traditionally conservative values yeah i think you know the illegal immigration problem in both of our countries is a legislative problem you know we are just not good enough at doing the paperwork to be able to integrate these people into society to make them actually do something you well, know you're just going to let them in and, and kind of leave them in a limbo state that is super fucked and dangerous you know at least we you know put them all in a hotel for a while and it costs us a shitload of money and we shouldn't be doing that but we don't just let them out there with no paperwork or nothing we do in the united states yeah you see that's just that's just crazy that's i do and, not agree, i do not agree with that and, and and that's the the big problem that's facing the biden administration and and the left in general yeah they've created this immigration crisis yeah I, and i don't even know who they is i mean the, the yeah yeah but the biden totally administration they're they're complicit and, yeah. you know, the, the DHS secretary Mayorkas is is complicit. But they have like there's there's all of these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations that are involved in putting these caravans together in South mm -hmm. America and getting them, giving them maps. There's there's uh, a, a report out from uh, one publication talking about how these these NGOs, they pass out maps to these immigrant caravans and say, this is the path you take to get to the American border. And then there's this uh, particular crossing in, in Lukeville. And we've never heard of Lukeville because there's a big, beautiful border wall, courtesy of Donald <laughs> Trump, in Lukeville. Yet the Biden administration went down there and uh, welded a door right in that wall and left it open so that people can come in. I don't know whose orders they're following to do that kind of thing, but it's becoming a massive problem 
Yeah. Because all of those liberal voters in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, which however many are left, they're all seeing this and going, hey, wait a minute. This is bullshit. Yeah. No, the guy that we voted bullshit. for is making this happen. Well, we're going to have to do something about that. And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like we're approaching this because I don't know, it's so convoluted. The concept that there's going to be a fair election this year just seems absolutely fantastical to me. There's way too much at stake. All, all of the criminals that worked against Donald Trump in the previous yeah. administration and the current administration, mm -hmm. they're all being discovered. The media yeah. is working overtime to keep the details suppressed. But bro, all the money, all the money laundering that the Biden family has been involved in with the evidence of human trafficking, that's, well, that's not good. One of our machines uh, just, inexplicably crashed. I guess Bill Gates doesn't want us talking about human trafficking in the Biden family, but there's evidence of this and it's, it's heavily suppressed and classified. And I, I feel like this is one of the reasons that Hunter Biden wanted to have his, uh, his congressional hearing because the, uh, the congressional subcommittee, um, house, Judiciary, I think, is headed up by Republicans, and they sent Hunter Biden a subpoena to come down and talk about all of these strange activities. And and they they actually there's the Treasury has hundreds of suspicious activity reports on Hunter Biden and the Biden family that have been heavily suppressed by the IRS and the Department of Justice, and some of these things. Some of these suspicious activity reports suggest human trafficking. Mm. But this isn't being talked about in the media. And, and this is, I mean, this is the, these are the things that a Donald Trump administration is going to be asking a lot of questions about. Yeah, for sure. It's so how, part, really. how does the left allow a fair election to take place this year? If they, if they have a choice. And this is kind of the flaw in the democratic system. I mean, I was thinking like, uh, uh, so when Barack Obama left office in 2016, or, or technically 2017, he lost the election in November, whatever, of, of 2016. And then January 20th, 2017, Trump was inaugurated and Obama was out. But Obama had all of this time between when he lost the election and when he actually left office to sabotage the incoming administration. And that's exactly what he did. He kicked a bunch of Russians out of the embassy to cause a bunch of problems. Then one of Donald Trump's national security advisors, Michael Flynn, who Barack Obama really didn't like, started talking to the Russian ambassadors to, to cool things off. Because the Russians were pissed. This dickhead Barack Obama just closed a bunch of their embassies and kicked them all out because he claimed that the Russians had interfered in the election for Donald Trump. Well, then this kicked off four years of Russia collusion hoaxes 
that the Department of Justice perpetuated, and, and I would say largely the intel community, largely perpetuated on the American people for the duration of, of the Donald Trump presidency. Well, now, I mean, every single day, more and more evidence is coming to light about how corrupt these people are and were and will continue to be unless they're stopped. Well, they don't want to be stopped. So what measures are they going to take to ensure that they don't have to stop? I'm afraid that the answer is any and all by by any means necessary is probably a phrase that's being heavily used behind closed doors by the people that want to keep their power, by the people that are afraid that Donald Trump is going to come for them if he wins in, in 2024. And this is the, the, the yarn being spun by the mainstream media. Oh, it's going to be the end of our democracy because Donald Trump said he's going to come into office and he's going to arrest all of his opposition. And, and I mean, that's what's happening now. With, with the Biden administration, everybody that was within smelling distance of January 6th is going to prison because they were there. And because this administration needs to send a message that if you're not with us, you're a criminal. So, and, and I think that this immigration issue is directly tied to the upcoming election. And this is one of my predictions for some of the uh, thrilling activities that are going to be taking place in the year leading up to this election. Mm, I was about to ask you this as well. I think the reason or, or, or one of the potential functions that all of this illegal immigration will serve is going to be, well, let me put it this way. These migrant caravans that are being cultivated by these non-governmental organizations, which are providing them aid and assistance and maps and directions. They're promising these immigrants all of these things that they're not going to realize when they get to the United States aren't coming to them. Now, they might get a debit card and a prepaid cell phone when they cross the border, but these NGOs are filling these immigrants' heads with all of this bullshit about how what, what a wonderful world the United States is right now, when that's not the case. The economy is in shambles. Things are better in El Salvador than they are in the United States, so much so that people with families that lived in El Salvador and immigrated to the United States say, oh, they're going back. They're going back to El Salvador because... The situation there is so much better than it is in the United States. Yeah. So these immigrants are going to say, hey, we were promised this. We were promised that. We're living in squalor. We're getting none of these benefits that we were promised. And that's when the riots begin. And when there's millions of displaced migrants in Los Angeles and Chicago and New York I have a feeling that the Secretary of State may say, we can't hold an election. It's too, de it's too dangerous. Oh, Polo Zelensky. We have a state of emergency. 
Mm. We we can't hold elections because of all the race riots that are happening around. And and then what happens? Yeah. Well, then at least if there wasn't riots, then there'd be fucking riots after that. Fucking a. And, on both sides. And then they say, sure. well, now we really can't have an election because uh, we have to resolve this civil war now. And that's, I mean, I, I, I hope I'm wrong, but that's my very dark prediction because so many, I mean, so many people think that there's not going to be an election and they're called crazy conspiracy theorists right now. But I see what's on the table. And how much these crazy leftists have to lose if they don't win the election in 2024. And I just think, how, how could they leave it up to chance? There's too much on the table. How could they not cheat their asses off? They already don't really care what the people in the country think. Why would they put themselves at risk to give them a voice now? I know it's, it's very pessimistic. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for you know, to what degree that's going to happen, I I don't really know. But I know one thing for sure, and the Democrats are going to do everything in their power to not get Trump in. Yeah, because you know, tr- Trump Trump is their is their kryptonite. And to be fair, Trump is the Republican Party's kryptonite too. You know, he just owns the entire situation. So they they're, they're going to do anything and everything possible within their power to make sure he doesn't get in. I mean, the the biggest problem that they have is that their main candidate is Joe Biden. I think I honestly think if they had anyone else other than Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. I think they do. I don't think. I don't think Trump would win. I would love to I see think, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but, but like, but yeah, I was just thinking in my head. I was like, okay, the only other person that would probably do worse than Joe Biden would be Hillary Clinton. Um, so I was like, as long as they don't pick her. But you know, my prediction, my my crazy out there prediction is that Joe Biden dies this year before the election. Well, it would solve and so then, many problems. Oh, I don't know. Because it's like the old, you know, what if you kill Putin kind of thing. Because if Joe Biden goes, the next guy's got to be Gavin Newsom. That's the next dude that they're going to put up. Yeah, I, I think it's undeniable. And, and I think you're right. Something is going to happen. Because yeah. if Joe Biden dies, say, whether he yeah. actually dies or that's just what the media tells us. Well, then all <laughs> yeah. of these problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. All these problems with Hunter Biden go away. All of his problems with money laundering and corruption and bribery, all of that, that all goes away. And, and of course, he wouldn't have to actually die. Like, that n- nobody in the media would raise a fuss about a closed casket ceremony for Joe Biden. They would no, happily no. just... I mean, they, yeah, because you can't show the wires coming out the back of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's an open, it's an open casket ceremony. Every day with Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they have to update his software every time he falls down the stairs. Shit. The fucking model isn't good enough yet. It's interesting that uh, earlier, well, I guess last year now, because we're in 2024, they were saying, oh, of course, yeah. Trump can't run because Biden already beat Trump. 
And if Trump wins, Biden's just going to beat him again. And that's been Biden's sort of campaign slogan, though, all of 2023. Is that really what he's saying? I beat Trump before I beat him again. I got to run because I got to beat Donald Trump. He's, he even said not so long ago, if Trump wasn't running, I wouldn't run either. But Trump's still running. And now they're saying Biden can't beat Trump. Trump is going to ruin Joe Biden. But it has really nothing to do with Joe Biden and everything to do with Joe Biden's policies, which are mm. the policies of the left and the policies of foreign interests. The only thing that I can't nail down is where the Middle Eastern foreign interests come down. Because it's clear they've got a hold of at least some of Joe Biden's strings. Mm-hmm. Well, for a very good reason, right? Well, I, you know, I mean, what do you think the reason a, is? Well, I mean, anytime America makes less oil, who do you think, you know, you buy it from next? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the only thing they really make is oil. So if you think about it, they're going to back whoever's going to make sure that America does a little bit less of that. But I would... I would suppose that the, the Middle Eastern nations, the big Middle, Middle Eastern nations, like, mm-hmm. like Qatar, mm-hmm. Qatar owns, oh, now we're talking about Qatar, so get ready for the computer to crash again. Qatar owns Al Jazeera. And yes. I, I wouldn't claim to assume what Al Jazeera's politics are. I think they try to be centrist. Yeah, from, from my experience, that I've never really had any major issues with anything that they've put out to be fair but if they're pushing media narratives the media narratives are largely leftist but muslim nations are far right like borderline or all the way fascist well of course because you know they they want you they want the Western world to think that they're, you know, cuddly and friendly and, you know, nice and, you know, lefty, lefty, all that. You very seldom find YouTube videos of like how the sheikhs really think over there. You sometimes find them and you realize they are very unapologetic about their views. Um, but their well, overall was... PR play is, is not that because they want to stay close to Western nations, which are far more you know, over to the left than, than those countries are. It's like the same trick that they tried to play with China and the U.S. back, uh, I think it was Nixon. And uh, Richard Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger put together this idea that, oh, we can spread our Western culture to China and China will become more like us. And then it turns around and America is becoming more like China every day. But China's not the only one. Russia's not the only one. And it was really interesting to hear this, this Russian ambassador, which is a, it's a poor characterization of, of who this person actually was. Honestly, I don't remember his exact title. But one of the interviewers asked him about the BRICS alliance and sort of the general feelings because this, this 
Russian politician was talking about uh, the developments in in the UN, you know, General Assembly and the UN Security Council and how the BRICS nations, you know, Brazil, Iran, China, et cetera, how they feel about sort of the West's involvement in the conflicts that are happening and, and namely Israel and Palestine. Mm. And of course, I mean, I, I was surprised at first, but then it made complete sense because of the, the BRICS alliance involvement with the Middle East. They believe that Israel is the oppressor and that, uh, you know, Palestine must be free and, and two state solution and all of that. And, and it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Jive, well, I don't know. What do you think? Does it jive with Russia's position on on Ukraine? Um, two state solution and all of that. Not, not, not really. It is, it is sort of contradictory. Um, I, I think this is, this is, this is more of a the whole thing. Would about you the say? Would you say is, it's is, more yeah. about, uh, sort of having Iran's back in the ordeal I, and less about yeah. how Russia really feels about it? I think it's more like having a united front against the UN and the US. So if you, if you look at like the way Russia's positioning itself now with other nations, they're saying, well, we're sanctioned by the US and you're sanctioned by the US, but we're not putting sanctions on you so you can do business with us. And that's kind of where they're going with this. It's like, you know, they're, they're the alternative economic system that Russia and China are trying to put on, um, which is a really interesting play. And, and, and they could, you know, hoover up quite a bit of business with a lot of, uh, you know, sort of third world countries and, and, and other countries that don't feel like America is working in their, in their best interests. And it, it could work out to some degree in, in their favor. The only problem that they have is that the kind of countries that they will hoover up from that are countries that are entirely unstable. They're very weak. Uh, governments, very weak economies, and have quite a lot of debt to the IMF. So it's um, it can be it's a high risk strategy. But I understand why they're doing it because they want to. Russia wants to um, put out this narrative that it's not just them on their own that believes the way that they believe that the that there are other nations that also believe the way they believe. So they can they can continuously encourage other people in the US, the UK, and in Europe. That hey look, we're not just crazy idiots on the outside here. You know that these people in the West are you know perpetuating uh, sort of perpetuating the downfall of the Western nation, and you should think a little bit like us. So it's it's more of a PR move if I was to really break it down. And uh, I do believe it is working to some to some extent. I also do believe to to some degree that we shouldn't be that hostile. In, in diplomatic senses with these countries. If you basically just sanction them, sanction them all out of the UN and you just, you just brutalize them, the only thing they're going to do is go, right, we're just going to leave the UN and we're just going to start our own thing. And then we have no influence over them. Then, then we have no conversation, no open dialogue. And we're back to a Cold War type situation where we've both got, you know, nukes pointed at each other and, and, and worried about who's going to press the button first. It's much easier. That's why I fucking hated the idea of us leaving the EU, because we didn't like the, the way the EU is being run. 
well, the EU is our largest training partner. And what kind of say do we have now? Zero. We can't change the EU, even if we wanted to. You know, before, at least we had a vote. We had a vote at the table. So I do believe that having a more open dialogue is, is always better. And I believe that sanctioning people and sanctioning um, large figures or organizations that are obviously doing things that are, are not in the best interest of anyone, it always works better than sanctioning a country in general because those sanctions are only valid to the countries that um, recognize them. So I, I wonder if the the one of the the bigger goals of brexit was to weaken destabilize the eu the european union and and kind of show other countries like look we can you yeah. know we can do just fine without the eu like wasn't wasn't poland yeah yeah actually i do i do believe in that i do believe it was like a some some people on on in the ERG, which again is this small group of um actually well at, at that time it was very large a group of Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party. I do believe that one of their intentions was to destabilize the EU and take France with them because Marine Le Pen was coming up, and take Italy with them and take Poland with them, and that did not happen at all. And I don't <laughs> think it will happen again because they have seen what has been such a chaotic and calamitous exit from the European Union. I don't think any country would be, would be stupid enough to follow suit. And the EU is kind of, I mean, it's the strongest it's ever been. They're going to take on Ukraine, obviously. I don't really know what kind of benefit that really is to, to the European Union taking Ukraine. I mean, they're in a war right now. Like, what possible benefit is it other than for fucking PR to take U Ukraine. Well, yeah, and they and can't they, they, join. They can't join NATO either because they're in a state of war. Right. I mean, but that's very, that's very basic. You know, if you if you take on a, a warring nation into a fucking a military a, alliance, yeah, military yeah, yeah. alliance, like you know, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it, it's the equivalent of like marrying off your sort of like daughter to the Spanish prince because you need their army to defeat it's very feudal it's that's a very mm -hmm. feudal behavior and that doesn't help fucking anything um and, and but the eu is the strongest it's ever been um even even without them even without us and and you know you see our politicians going yeah yeah the eu's finished with us it's like do are you, you sure do you think it's more likely that other countries exit the eu or that britain rejoins the eu I don't think the the Brit I I don't think that any other countries will leave the EU. I think they've seen what we have done and viewed it as a self-inflicted suicidal moment for their nations. <laughs> I mean that's what it is. You're basically shooting yourself in the foot. You know, if you're going to be the government that basically says, "Right, we're going to take 5% off our GDP for basically nothing and cause like 10 years of of fucking stagnation for nothing." I I mean that that's that that that, that is not something that's going to you know, after it, because it had never happened before. So, you know, for us, we went in there thinking it would all be okay. So at least you can have that argument with the public and say, hey, look, this is going to be so much better, this, that, and the other. You don't have that anymore. You don't have the element of surprise. Everyone has already known what happened to the UK when it left. So some politician has got to try and sell that. We're going to do this, but better. I mean, that's, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy arguing that to the public. That's just insane. Um, plus the fact that I don't believe the UK will re-enter the EU. I don't believe they'll do it within my 
within within anywhere in the region of 25 years. I do believe there is one possibility that we will rejoin the European economic area, which would allow free movement of people. I do believe that that would be attainable within within the next 10 years. I think that, that would be easier to sell. Um, I'm I'm generally really... in favor of a lot of the the sort of globalist selling points uh, yep. when it comes to things like free movement and free trade and and the, I mean the only the only hang up that I have is is in my opinion that's clearly not the object especially with this um so I was I was looking up the just a little bit on the the occupy movement because I was planning on talking about it. And it uh one of the subjects that kept coming up was populism, which is the mm. I mean the general idea that you know the the population makes the decisions. It's like the the power of the people and that was the thing about the 99% versus the 1% which kind of encapsulated the the occupy movement. Yeah. I can't really be in support of a European Union or a North American Union or an African Union where the governors and the leadership isn't specifically appointed mm. by at least representatives of the people. Because, and, and, and I, I found it interesting, like there is such a, and I almost wonder if it's like, word word games like they they say populism and then in the same breath they tell you what it is falsely without saying like the actual definition or or the the broad definition which is govern government of the people for the people it's oh it's right-wing populism nationalist populism they throw these other act at adjectives and qualifiers in there to paint this darker picture and who in their right mind is going to look at this concept on its face and go yeah you're right it, it, it would be much better for the elite to make all of the decisions and leave the greater population in squalor because they're the elite yeah. and they know what's best i don't believe that under under any circumstances you can, car you can carve people up into small groups and let them make the decisions that affects them and, and the people closest to them. So when it, in, in terms of an EU and, and even a United States, the United States is turning this way too, where they're, they're trying to take away states' rights and the rights of people in general. And even even the rights of people in other countries, like we're not supposed to be in in armed conflicts without the approval of Congress. But I think the last war that the United States was officially in was World War Two. I might be getting that wrong. Maybe it was Vietnam. But uh, I, I thought it was the was it the Korean War? I, I don't think that was an official declaration of war. Really? But th yeah, the, I mean, it's... Oh, where the United States like officially declared war. Because it's, yeah, because it's like, oh, these are just conflicts. These are just armed conflicts. That's somehow different. I thought Iraq was one, though, where they officially declared war on Iraq. 
Yeah, I th- I think it was. I'm I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to I look it almost, up uh, I can, now. Yeah, I can almost uh, remember Bush saying that we're gonna like you know we're declaring war on all terrorists and stuff like that, and that includes like Iraq. Like that's pretty. Yeah. But I'm just looking. The at last the official declaration of war by Congress was during World War II. Wow, that's crazy. Oh, by Congress. Yeah, which is how it's supposed to be uh, done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. That's different. That is how it's supposed yeah, to be Congress. done. You know, um, I was just looking up this European Commission thing because I know one of the biggest one of the biggest things people do talk about is that you know it's unelected officials running. Um, running that's a big. Uh, that's a big issue with the uh, the bureaucracy in the United States. It is, um, but it's it's not exactly true. Actually, it's not true at all. The European Commission is not elected by the people directly, but they are elected by the MEPs, which are elected by the people. So it's no different than the way our parliament works in the UK, where we elect the MPs and then the party forms a government. It's the same. So, But if the population in the UK... Mm-hmm. takes issue with the decisions that the EU is making. Yeah. What can what course of action does the UK have in rectifying the issues that they have? So when when we when we were in the EU, we would have members of the European Parliament that we would vote on. The UK population would vote on. We would have members in the parliament that were from the UK. So if any of those people have issues with what the EU is doing, just like our local politicians in government would, then they can voice their opinion in in the parliament and take issue with it. And obviously they do votes on whether things get in and and don't get in. One of the biggest votes that's been going on for 10 years has been the one on on immigration, which has taken ages. And you'd imagine that's something that they'd ram through with, you know, the so-called lefty sort of EU thing, but it's it's just not. They've had to vote on it. And it has to be, it has to be like all 27, 28 member states has to agree. Um, and all states have veto power on stuff. So if you don't like something, you can veto it as a country, and it doesn't go in. So this, this, so this idea that they're unelected bureaucrats in the EU is true, but also not true. Not true at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, that's like so many things in politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do believe it's 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 less nefarious than people think. You know, it isn't like. It isn't like the the WEF, the WEF. Now that is something you know we can all have a discussion about. Yeah, that. But it's not an organ. Yeah, it's not an organization like like the WEF, which is just straight up all the elites running some weird, almost think tank like experiment on the economy. And the, yeah, and that the, is and not the EU. All the yeah. major titans of industry show up to that thing, and they all. Yeah. They all fly over there in their private jets and talk about how they need to reduce climate emi- or carbon emissions right. so that they can save the world from all of these useless eaters, I guess. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like it literally says on the European website, on the EU website, it says the European Commission is led by its president and the 27 commissioners, one per country. So that's, that's just the way it works. Everyone gets 
representatives. Actually, there's some really good there's some really good clips online. I, uh, if you're listening at home, I highly r- recommend you look up the clips of Nigel Farage, who was an MEP. He was a member in the European Parliament as well as the UK Parliament. You could be in both. And he has some amazing clips where he's, you know, ripping the European uh, Parliament apart. And I always thought that was really good. Nigel Farage, I don't like him very much. But if he has a problem with the way the EU is working, I believe that he should be able to voice, voice that opinion in the European Parliament. Now we have gone through Brexit. We no longer have any representation in the EU, even though that they are our largest trading partner. So if we have any issues with them now, we can't we can't formally uh, do anything about it. They could do whatever they want. They could stop trading with us altogether. It wouldn't be in their best interest. But I mean, they 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 can they can change the rules, and we are completely and utterly at, at their behest. Whereas before, we had veto power. We could veto shit. Uh, we could voice our opinion in the parliament. Now we have none of that. So you tell me which one is better, to be in the EU and actually have an opinion and have a say, uh, or be out of the EU where we have to do the same shit, but we don't have any power, and we have a shit trading agreement, and we can't have free movement of people anymore. It's a nightmare. Well, surely it's more complex than that, and I, I don't, I'm not claiming that you are, are oversimplifying it, but I do have some misgivings. When you put it in terms like that, just being that you find yourself in this, in this position, a lot of people feel this way about their jobs. They get into their job, they work there for a few years, then suddenly they're, you know, they're making 200K a year and they're miserable, but they can't go anywhere else because they're not going to get that level they're they're not going to be at that level of of comfort with their their income and their their earning potential they enjoy a certain level of status that this position provides them and now they yeah. feel like they're trapped there so you can be in this situation in the EU and I don't claim to know any of the ins and outs I'm just like yeah, I, yeah. I am vaguely familiar with Nigel Farage and I like a lot of the things that he has said. Yeah. yeah. And when I think about it in those terms and I think about, you know, the, like the, the very excellent points that you're making about now having no voice and being at the mercy of this, you know, massive organization, largest trading partner and not having any say. Mm hmm. But then I think about all of the people who generally share our political beliefs saying, this is terrible, we've got to get out. And it just leaves me thinking, well, geez, how bad was it? I mean, and, and good luck finding real information online, the, on, the same online that's controlled by the globalist left that has a globalist yeah, agenda. Sure. Yeah, which wants a GU to go along with their EU and, and NAU and AU and, you know, all the U's. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I'm not saying it's I I don't want to say that it was a perfect system. Of course it wasn't. Um, but everything, everybody being carved up into their own tiny little tribes isn't working. It's, it's what many of us, are still, you know, trying to cling to 
when clearly the world is moving in another direction. I don't think positive progress for the species means local politics forever and ever. No, exactly. I I, I mean, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get at is in, in the history of the world. Okay. There's never been anything like the European union. And it's just a, a massive struggle for me to figure out if there's anything better um, that we that we could have done, you know, or if there's any real, really strong argument for, for leaving it. Uh, and it's just, it's very difficult. One of the problems of trying to find a, a, a reasonable argument for leaving is, is, it's actually quite difficult. Even if you look at the hard numbers, even if you look at all the, stuff that's going on it's very difficult to make a case for leaving the eu from the uk's perspective okay from other countries perspective it's actually a little bit more simple because they might be far down the road on on being in you know ingrained with the eu than than we were you got to remember we have our own government which makes our own laws okay so we're not we're not like you know, like a vassal state of the EU sort of thing, which which is one of the arguments that people are like, oh, they're making laws for us. It's like, well, yeah, around like trading standards, not like speed limits and stuff like that. <laughs> we have our own measurements. We have our own currency, which is something that's actually quite rare in the EU. And um, many EU countries take the euro, of which is, we can have a lot of arguments about the euro and how that's manipulated to to serve Germany and France more and crush Greece and crush you know Italy you know moves it around to, to crush other countries like Croatia you know that's a serious argument we can have but from the UK's perspective our currency is disconnected from the EU um we're separated by water which means that our immigration problem is a lot less than what they're having in the EU so we're you know we have the free movement of people for our own people. We have uh, free movement of goods, so we don't have any taxes or trade tariffs. Uh, we have our own standards on car safety, this, that, and the other. We have complete autonomy over our own laws. So it's and and any little issues, let's say, that we end up having, you are usually around around trade um, and around like sort of like corporate tax. I think it's more like a corporation thing. Would you say that people had more of an issue with the infrastructure of the E? I use that term loosely, but like the basic infrastructure of the EU over the actual policies of the EU, because this is one of the things that I hear a lot when it comes to the, the way the justice system is operating in the United States right now. A lot of the Republicans and, and, you know, Republican pundits, they say, you don't want to set this precedent because that means that this, this, and this, you know, these bad things will happen in the future as a result of this precedent. Do you feel like a lot of the, you know, the Brexiteers Mm. looked at the infrastructure of the EU and said, this is going to cause problems. And then people like Nigel Farage saw the inner workings of the whole system and said, this is going to be bad down the road. Right now, it's still the gilded lily, but 
in a decade, it's going to be a tool for authoritarianism. Um, let's get back to that. We got to go. Yeah. We Visit Vox404.com. Go. Yeah, there's well, a lot we can talk about. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big issue. Mm. And uh, yeah, at, uh, at this current time, we better not crack that egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could be here for hours, man. But it's, I mean, it's going to be a recurring topic because yeah. it is, I mean, in, in my opinion, the uh, unification of all of the countries. I mean, it, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I would really, I'd be really interesting to hear your perspective on how countries could exist without borders, because I think it could generally be a net benefit for the world. Mm. But there's always people on both sides trying to pull these general policies towards themselves for their own benefit. For sure. And if you want to experience it, I highly recommend you do what I did and go on a road trip through Europe. Um, that is, you know, the best way to, to come up with your own opinion on whether you believe that it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, you know, first-hand experience. God, I just have, I have so many questions. All right, we're going to pick it up next week. Visit Vox404.com. Follow us on XFKA Twitter, at EarthVox. Follow my co-host at 404missing underscore link. And for any further correspondence and or an invitation to our Discord server, send an email to therealearthvox at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening this week. Um, really good one. And I'm sort of sorry that we have to kind of cut it off, but we are running out of time. Um, so stay tuned for next week. Obviously, it's uh, mostly Wednesdays that we do this. Uh, and if you're really, really itching for some more content, I highly recommend you go check out uh, last week's episode, which is which is really cool for me because I'd never heard something from, from that long ago um, on what the show used to be. And then the week before that was, was a great episode. I listened to that probably two or three times back over it and see you know where we went and what the energy was like it was really strong we'll talk to you soon <laughs>